1 John 1, 1 through 10, 2 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have fellowship one with another, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. You've probably heard uh, a phrase something like this. Um, is that guy for real? Right? You may have heard a phrase or used a phrase uh, that went something like that. Uh, this, is that person genuine or a fake? Right? We've all said that. If we haven't said it out loud, we've wondered it. Um, that kind of critique of a person's character an assessment of whether or not they are who they say they are or they're pretending to be somebody else is, well, it's really helpful. I'm uh, happy to tell you I do it, and so do you. It's especially helpful for um, fathers of daughters, you know. Whenever it's time for your daughter to date somebody, you're saying, is this guy for real or not? I'm looking him over. I'm critiquing him. And um, I've done that many times, and I'm sure I'll do it again. It's okay, isn't it? It's okay until it comes to faith. Oh, I mean, it's okay culturally until it comes to faith. If you question somebody's faith and you say, is that person really a Christian? What kind of response are you going to get? Well, who are you to judge? And I get that. I get that response because it's a very difficult thing to do. And as a matter of fact, the reason I get the response is because sometimes I'm just judgmental. I'm not trying to figure out whether or not a person is truly a Christian. I'm just judgmental. There's another part of that. Even if I'm trying to critique a person as to whether or not he or she is truly a believer, I have to admit that deep down within me, there's a sinful nature that somehow skews the data. <laughs> I look at them and I think, oh, they can't be, or yes, they are, and I can't be absolutely positive. 
are 100% accurate. On the other hand, it's just as necessary as me critiquing the young man who wants to date my daughter. Or let's put it another way. The epistle of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, is all about that. That's what he writes for. He basically says, there are people among you who say they're Christ followers and they're not. And I'll tell you why they're not. And I want to call, I want to call them out and I want you to believe what is true, not what is false. So what is it that marks off a person as truly Christian? That could, I suppose, be a series of sermons and discussions, right? But in the context of this sermon, as you know, we're doing one epistle, or in this case, three epistles all in one setting. It's abundantly clear that the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John thinks there are distinguishing marks for being a Christian. Furthermore, John thinks there are people who claim to be Christian who are not. Primarily, he speaks of those who are not and trying to persuade those believers that he loves of a different notion of who Christ is. So first, John says one distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is belief. Now you say that's pretty nebulous, and certainly it is. Belief in what, you might ask, and those are appropriate questions. In the context, again, in this epistle of John, there is an errant teaching that John is addressing concerning Jesus. John is saying, in effect, belief is a characteristic of the Christian person. And the belief I'm talking about has a particular object and a particular truth attached to it. One can say you believe in Jesus, but if you say you believe in Jesus, it is this you must believe. Because this is who Jesus is. If you say you believe in Jesus and the description you give of Jesus is not who Jesus is, then you don't believe in Jesus. Because Jesus made it abundantly clear who he was. There were uh, any number of what they often call in church history heresies in the early church and they continue to proliferate today. They are errant teachings concerning the faith. And on this particular occasion, John is probably addressing a doctrine that is somehow associated with what we often call Gnosticism. Although Gnosticism as a real developed idea probably was after John's time. However, elements of a thing called Gnosticism seem to be apparent behind the scenes in this teaching that John calls out. And some of those elements must have looked like this based on the historical evidence that we found with other writers like Irenaeus. Probably there was a teaching going around that looked something like this. The world was made, created, not by God, but by a, a power that was second to God. A sort of demagogue, a 
a powerful being, but not God himself. So God was not the creator and author of all things. It's this kind of demagogue creature that was. The second thing that seems to be apparent about this doctrine is it had its motive. The motivation for claiming this is to say that God himself cannot be sullied in any way, soiled by material things, nature itself, what we call human or humanity or earthly. God can't be associated, I mean connected, really connected with those things. Because God is spirit and God is divine and he is above all those things. So he couldn't be creator of those things. Those things are of a lower level and even, as some would argue, evil. So God cannot be associated with that. There had to be an intermediary kind of being that created all this stuff. As it related to Jesus Christ, the teaching seemed to have been that Jesus Christ was not miraculously born of a virgin and was not by his nature both human and divine. Was not fully God and fully man. You can see why, correct? Because to be fully God, you couldn't be sullied by humanity. But in the person of Jesus Christ, according to the Gospel of John and the other epistles in the New Testament, Jesus was not just fully God, he was fully human. The mystery that we cannot seem to bridge in our understanding, but that which we accept by faith. This doctrine said that's an impossibility. So Jesus couldn't have been born by a virgin. He is material like everyone else. Now this Jesus, according to this teaching, it's likely, this Jesus was a sinless human being in terms of his volition and his will and his actions, even though he was material, which made him somewhat sinful, he was above sin in terms of his actions. He was a sinless human being. And because of that, God chose to allow Christ, the anointed one, to superintend or be over and in and around and through this human Jesus such that you could actually say he was the Son of God. You could say he was the Messiah of God. But to make those declarations, you were not saying that Jesus was fully God and fully human. You were saying that the Spirit of God was on him in an anointed, special way. Now furthermore, since God can't be sullied by sin, God couldn't go through a thing we call crucifixion and death. So at the point of Jesus' crucifixion and suffering and death, this Spirit of God leaves and leaves Him alone. And Jesus Himself, the human being, suffers at the hands of the angry mob and is crucified by the Romans because God couldn't undergo such humiliation and death. That's probably, as best we can tell, the heresy that John is speaking against. Now, among other reasons, we say this because he makes it utterly clear that his 
understanding of Jesus and their faith in Jesus ought to correspond to this reality. Remember these words. That which was from the beginning, that means before all time. It means John 1.1, the Word became flesh. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and have touched. The real Jesus, who had flesh and bones, that we saw and experienced and touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, a divine designation, both human and divine, says John, of Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This physical, human Jesus walking in the flesh was the eternal life of God. Not just an anointed, perfect human being, but God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten but not made being of one substance with the Father. In Him all things were created. Or to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from among all creation. John is making it utterly clear that any other teaching concerning Jesus is false. And if you believe in another kind of Jesus... You do not believe in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a, a really popular approach to faith that says it really doesn't matter what you believe. It just matters that you do. Pray to what? Not so important. Just be open. Have faith? Not so important in what? Just be passionate about what you believe. Live according to your heart. Find the good within yourself. The phrases go on and on. I use those descriptions to say this. That's not what John was saying about faith. He would have had a holy conniption fit. Remember that old phrase? Yeah. If they had said to him, that's what you mean by faith? He would have come unglued. He would have come out of his skin. He would have said, no, you haven't been listening to anything I said. Faith in Jesus Christ is faith in the person of Jesus Christ and who he said he is. And I tell you, this is who he is because I experienced it. That's the faith you must have. Why is he so adamant about this? Because... Belief or faith, it has consequences. It can't just be a nebulous thing that makes you feel better. It can't just be something that gives you a sense of your own spirituality. Faith really has consequences if it's faith. 
if it's truly faith. You see, here's an example. It's possible for me and for you and for anyone else to believe that Jesus Christ is basically like Santa Claus. And I could put my faith in that belief. Of course, you know the story on Santa Claus. The story on Santa Claus is if you're a good little boy or girl, you get what you ask for. If you're a bad little boy or girl, you'll get coal in your stocking. Well, forget the fact that nobody uses stockings anymore. Well, some people do. We have a tree and there's mountains of gifts underneath it. But what is the statement about Santa Claus, at least at that level? You can earn it. If you want it, you can earn it. It's all about you. There's something else about the Santa Claus story too, right? We know that nobody gets coal in their stocking. Really, honestly. Did you hear about that the last time? No, you didn't. Nobody does. Nobody gets coal in their stocking. It's a tool to try to make a kid behave and be the person that you want them to be. It's a tool for lots of other things, but you're still going to get them a gift. Because in the end, Santa Claus is good, and everybody wins, and everybody is happy. Because that's Santa Claus. And that's not Jesus. Jesus never said to us, you can earn it. If you're good enough, eternal life will come your way. If you have all your ducks in a row, you can achieve salvation. Jesus never said that, nor did any of the apostles say that, nor did the scriptures say that. In spite of the fact that they call us to obedience and put a high premium on the law, they never said, you can make it on your own. Just do the right thing and I'll give you what you want. If I believe Jesus is Santa Claus, I'm believing the wrong thing and it has consequences. Because if I govern my life on that principle, I will be utterly disappointed. Because it won't be true. If my second premise concerning Santa Claus is true and I believe that no matter what I do in the end, I'm still going to get what I want on Christmas Day, my conclusion concerning Santa Claus, Jesus, and God is that I can do whatever I want and somehow at the end of the day I'm going to get eternal life because God just gives that out like Christmas presents that morning. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says at the end of the age, there's going to be a judgment. And some people are going to be judged as wicked and they're going to be separated from God for all eternity. And other people are going to be judged as righteous and they're going to live with God for all eternity. And those who live with God for all eternity are not living with God for all eternity because they got it right. Because they did everything perfectly. They will live with God for all eternity because eternal life comes through Jesus Christ, God's Son. Truth has consequences. 
and believing in a mischaracterization of Jesus has consequences. Let me put it um, another way. Using the backdrop of this false teaching. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, the resurrection makes no sense. Or to put it in the words of St. Paul, if, in fact, Christ was not raised, our faith is utterly useless, senseless, and in vain. And we are to be pitied more than anyone because of the crux of believing in Jesus is that the God-man Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The consequences of an improper understanding of Jesus means you lose the resurrection. And thus you lose the possibility of salvation. And thus you lose the incredible truth that is so profoundly Christian that in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, sin was destroyed. And death was destroyed. And that's not the end of the picture for those who believe. If you hold on to the wrong conviction, no matter how mightily you hold on to it, and it's not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, you've lost it all. That's why John's so adamant about it. That's why Paul's so adamant about it. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews that we looked at several weeks back is so adamant about it. Because if Christ had not died and raised him by the glory and the power of God, then we'd have to continue to do sacrifices over and over and over again for sins. And the eternal sacrifice that we believe came in the person of Jesus Christ, because he was fully God and fully man, that eternal sacrifice wouldn't exist. There would be no eternal Lamb of God. Belief has consequences. Let me summarize it this way. John, in effect, is saying that belief, belief, proper belief, in the person of Jesus Christ is inseparable from salvation. A generic faith about Jesus is not the same thing as saving faith in Jesus. And John wants that to be absolutely clear. The second thing John says that is characteristic of a Christian is obedience. First belief concerning who Jesus is and then obedience. Remember these words. This is the message we've heard from him. And declare to you, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. And if we claim we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You're sinners. <laughs> That's the truth. And you're forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And here's something else that's the truth. If you understand the great mercy and amazing grace of Jesus, 
you also understand that you must obey. That you must walk in the light. Apparently, these false teachers, again, we conjecture a bit, but apparently these false teachers had uh, suggested that there was the possibility of being at such a high level in spirituality, remember the separation of the spirit and the body, that you could be up there in the upper echelons to such an extent that the body didn't matter anymore anyway. So sin was not a problem in the body because the body didn't matter. So they literally thought they could live above sin. And John says, don't fool yourself. If you say with, you're without sin, you're a liar. You don't understand the truth is not in you. You have to believe the truth, the living truth of Jesus Christ, and then walk in obedience to that truth. Obedience is empty. Excuse me, faith is empty without obedience. We, we hear that in a lot of different places, especially in the epistle of James. And in the teachings of Jesus, a call to believe that we must follow. James puts it uh, rather crassly at one point. He said, you believe? Congratulations, my friend. So do the devils when they tremble. I don't want to hear about your belief. I want to hear about the belief that produces deeds. He doesn't mean work salvation. He just means that faith without living out in the light of Christ, faith of that sort is no faith at all. Obedience must accompany faith for faith to be true at all. You know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm not much of a, a poet. Sometimes I read poetry and I think, man, that's really good. Other times I read poetry and I say, I have no idea what that guy was trying to say. <laughs> On occasion I read poetry and most of the time, I think, I, if I would think about it, I think most of the time the poetry that connects with me comes through music. I don't know. Somebody could tell me why that happens. Uh, Professor Wong over there or something. Neurology, I don't know what, what's going on. But when, whenever the poetry's in music, sometimes it just connects. And I'm inspired. But you know... That's different than this. I can be inspired by poetry. I can be inspired by the lyrics of a song. But my inspiration does not demand of me obedience. I'm just inspired. It's wonderful. I love it. It makes me happy. But when we look at the life of Jesus and hear his teachings, we can't just be inspired, says John, or says James, or says Paul, or any of the other writers in the New Testament. You can't just be inspired like great poetry. When you connect to the words and the teachings of Jesus, there is a continual call to obedience to follow. Inspiration is not enough. Obedience is necessary. Because when you walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sins.
So first is belief as a mark of the Christian. Second is obedience as a mark of the Christian. And third is love. That's a mark of the Christian. Apparently, again, some people among their company were having some trouble with loving others. It, this is when you just really enjoy getting behind the story, right? You'd love to see what the dispute was about. You'd love to figure out what was getting people all wrangled up and why they weren't able to love one another and a variety of things. We don't know all those details. But it's probably, as usual, this lack of love because of some form of bad theology. Um, some people think theology is boring. Uh, try to work on that if you do. <laughs> it's not boring. And it's the foundation for what you believe. It's absolutely essential. And if you have some really bad theology, you're going to make some really bad decisions. And you're going to be one of these people that John talks about as errant in your doctrine and your behavior. They go together. So perhaps, though we don't know, some of this bad theology suggested that if you get to a certain spiritual level, since the body is unimportant and perhaps even evil, the idea of loving one's fellow human being is just not really that necessary. Just love the truth. Yeah? Just love the spiritual nirvana that you have or whatever it is that tickles your spiritual fancy. Be in the stratosphere. But don't worry about the details down here of love. Or maybe, maybe it was the result of uh, bad theology that says something to the effect of, well, if you're going to hate sin, you got to hate the sinner. Something like, you must hate the wicked. We, we know that was uh, pretty prevalent among religious sects. One of the uh, more popular sects around the time of Jesus would have been um, the sect of the Pharisees, the Essene community. Sometimes you've heard a reference to the Qumran community where the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Here's a phrase from some of their teachings. The teaching says, Love all the sons of light. Each one, according to his lot, in God's plan. In other words, love them according to how they're matching up to God's plan. Love them to that level. Whatever their level of matching up to God's plan is, you love them to that level. And, conversely, to detest all the sons of darkness, each one in accordance to the blame in God's vindication I wonder if that's why Jesus made this statement you've heard it said love your neighbor or your friend but hate your enemy but I say unto you love your enemy do good to those who hurt you and spitefully use you and then he lived it. 
John puts it this way, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he's going but because the darkness has blinded him. Jesus says, love even your enemies. And John reminds them, you've got to love your brothers. It doesn't make any difference how you feel. It doesn't make any difference how perhaps errant they are. You must love them. I wonder why. Why this teaching? Well, I think it's because hating sin is appropriate, but hating people is not. Why would we say that hating sin is appropriate and hating people is not? Because people are created in the image of God. And it makes no difference how far they've strayed from God's goodness. They're still created in the image of God. And so Jesus says, I want you to love even your enemies. They're the image of God. How can you hate them? In that vein, it is appropriate to hate sin. Why? Because it destroys the image of God. We hate sin because it destroys the image of God in the other that we are supposed to love. And when sin is all around that image of God, that image of God is clouded and almost eclipsed from view. And so we hate the sin that eclipses and destroys the image of God. But we don't hate the person. You say, well, that's really good advice. I like the teachings of Jesus. So do I until somebody points out that I'm hating the sinner not just the sin. You say, well, that's not my problem. Uh, first of all, I suspect you haven't been introspective enough to discover that it is. Uh, second, I suspect that you haven't been listening to your culture. Because the culture wars between Christians and non-Christians, they bespeak hate, not of ideas, Although they do, frequently they bespeak hate of others. How? If we follow the teachings of Jesus. We must love them and hate the sin that destroys the image of God in them. John says a mark of a Christian is to love. But he doesn't leave this notion of love out in this nebulous category. Um, at the risk of being pejorative, John's notion is not some nebulous spirituality that has been penned by the popular author of the book called Eat, Pray, Love. Whatever the, the beauty of the language in that book and the bits of wisdom that are in it, in terms of true spirituality or theology it's just pish posh it's nonsense 
the person who writes the book is basically experiencing themselves and trying to find themselves. And, and they go to Italy, and in Italy they uh, discover for a long period of time pleasure. And then move from Italy to India, where the point is to discover devotion. And then after leaving India, this person goes to Bali, and the point there is to discover balance. And all along the way, among other things, love is good. Love what you love. And be passionate about it. You see, here's the thing about John's teachings and about the teachings of the Bible. Hear me well. Not all love is good. Here's another stunning revelation. Sin. We often think of as a bad thing. But sin is a disordered, inordinate love. You can't just say love so you don't sin. I love what is inappropriate for me, thus I do sin through my loves. And there's a whole list of them. My loves that are inappropriate. They are sin. My loves... My existential loves, my inside me loves cannot be the guide for my life. That is narcissism and it's destructive not only to me but to others. I must love what is good, not love what I love. Because to simply love what I love means I love sin. If you love the world, says John, you don't love God. He gets pretty bold about it. Now, he doesn't mean um, that you hate the world and destroy the ecosystem or the environment or anything like that. That's not what he's talking about, obviously. He's saying this thing called the world, which is the flesh and the devil, (laughs) this thing called inordinate loves, if you love the world, if you allow possessions to be your soulmates, If you allow God to be eclipsed by the stuff that you love, you're loving the world and you're not loving God. So be careful about your loves, says John. Loves must be rightly ordered. And how are they rightly ordered? Loves are rightly ordered through obedience to God. And then we find our highest notion of love. So what's the point? (laughs) In summary, it's this. It matters what you believe. Why? Because your beliefs have eternal consequences. Second, belief is empty, absolutely ineffective, without obedience. Don't talk about faith and believing unless you're willing to follow. Not when it comes to Jesus. 
third, love is essential for the Christian because God is love. And in Him, there's no darkness at all. It's a part of the frustration of doing one book at a time because every one of the points could be another sermon. And at the end, I think, man, what I left out. How much more is there to discover about divine love? A lot. But instead, I'll leave you with these words, uh, two verses of which we're about to sing. From Charles Wesley, Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling. All thy faithful mercies crown. Where does the love come from? From above. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every trembling heart. Breathe, O oh, breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away our love, our love of sinning. Alpha and Omega be. Be the beginning and the end for us. May we love you and you alone. Take away our love of sin. Alpha and Omega be. End of faith at its beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Come Almighty to deliver let us all thy life receive, suddenly return and never, never more thy temples leave. He's anticipating the day that true love divine will be his reality. Thee we would be always blessing. Serve thee as thy host above. Pray and praise thee without ceasing. Glory in thy perfect love. I love this last verse finish. Lord, you promised to do it. I want to ask you to do it. Finish. Then thy new creation. You began it in me, Lord. You gave me a new heart. It's still a heart that's fragmented and wants to serve the loves that are not appropriate to me. But Lord, finish your new creation. Pure and spotless let it be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored to thee. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We do thank you that there is a compass of truth and uh, we know for sure we don't always get it right, so keep us humble. But on the other hand, it's, it's clear enough for us to follow. So help us to set our sights on the truth and to not only believe it, but to obey the truth of Jesus Christ concerning life and redemption. And help us, Lord, above all things to exude divine love. It's 
it's not a part of our natural being because we're self-loving human beings. We think of ourselves first and in the example of Jesus Christ, you gave up everything because you thought of us. So may we emulate uh, that kind of love to our world. May we despise the sin that so easily besets us and mars the image of God in ourselves and others. And may we love every person you've created in your image and long to see the day that you will restore your image in us completely. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.